0: bringing you the inside goss from the tv industry
1: hello and welcome to the tv Black Box one-on-one podcast episode one i'm aaron ryan this is a special option of the tv blackbox podcast where we can be able to speak one-on-one with a special guest in the television media industry for an in-depth discussion our first guest is none other than the australian script executive and australian drama creator Royalty, Mr Bevan Lee, the man behind All Saints, Always Green and Packed, The, pack the Raptors, Winners and Losers, a Place to Call Home, and the new series Between Two Worlds, which premieres at 8.30pm this Sunday, the 26th of July, after the premiere of Farmer Wants a Wife. Bevan Lee, thank you for joining me at TV Blackbox.
0: Thank you so much. Hey, none, none other than Royalty, you're making me purr right out the gate. What can I say?
1: You are indeed. So many shows. Well, let's get to this, because this is the main question. When thoughts go through your mind for a new show, you have a track record of creating hits and shows that resonate with the Australian audience. So what is the secret? What creative elements come together in your mind that you believe will then resonate with Australia?
0: You never set out to, to, to set out to write a hit. You just get a... a, a, a it starts, I think, in the zeitgeist, like... Uh, or, or just a, a sense, uh, that you get of something, um, all saints. I went to hospital and was very sick and I remember lying in hospital bed thinking, um, these nurses are all saints and not the doctors. And I suddenly got the idea of uh, when, you know, of if I did a medical show, it would be about nurses predominantly and not doctors. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, then I hooked up with Susan Bauer, who co-created it with me and, 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 and she had been a nurse. So that, that was, uh, the syn- synchronicity there. Um, uh, rasters I just remember thinking there was a lot of dark stuff on on the television landscape. The very good underbelly series, but they were very dark and nihilistic about the human condition. I thought it was time for a bit of a you know brighter show, and um, uh, so, and as a consequence, uh, I sort of noticed that a lot of people, kids, were going back under their parents' roofs, and I thought that was an interesting. It was a thing that was happening. It was an interesting situation, place, I guess. I um, I had just vision of a woman on a ship going from somewhere to somewhere. I had no idea who she was. And then I just suddenly thought it hasn't been a historical series for a while. I started to rattle around in my head. And where a lapsed Catholic Jewish convert who had survived the Second World War by being a whore in a concentration camp who stops the... Closeted homosexual son of a squatocracy family for committing suicide by jumping aboard from liner on the way back to Australia. Where that came from, I have no idea. And that is the other, that is the other, that is the other thing too. There is this thing that I couldn't even begin to tell you that happens. I don't know why it happens, but it just does. And you somehow get this link to another place and start developing it from there.
1: Well, let's start at the uh, the beginning. You were born where I am, of course, in beautiful Western Australia. I don't want to ask every detail about your childhood, but holistically, I I wonder what the elements of growing up led you to this, to your career, which I believe you're at first an actor. Well, actually, you're a massive chemistry teacher. So, I wonder yeah. if you can somehow join the dots to, to see your life seemed to be going one way, and then it was destined for another.
0: I had a wonderful mother and father, but I I definitely did feel like a cuckoo in the nest. I don't know whether it was my gayness or, you know, the time when that was illegal. And and so, therefore, there was a lot more shame and sense of hidden, uh, held in sense of exclusion in that. But I felt I was outside this warm nest um, and wasn't a part of it. Um, I was an odd kid who would tend to go into my bedroom and shut the door whenever visitors came. Um, and so I retreated a lot into fantasy I retreated a lot into reading um, no wonder I write serials I remember the way I used to send myself to sleep as a young person was to imagine some fantasy thing in my head about a person Bevan who would be doing stuff and it would tend to do with pirate ships or uh, I don't know cowboys or knights and princesses or something we, in my case princes. Um, and, um, and 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 uh, and every night I would Go to sleep, and the next first thing I do the next morning is remember where I left off and pick the story up that night. I always had sort a of serial mentality. Um, I did terribly well at school in everything, but I particularly well in sciences and maths, so therefore, it would seem logical for me. In fact, I topped the state in physics, and I it seemed logical, therefore, to go and do science at uni. Um, uh, two years in my science degree, I found my sexuality, so I spent so much time, too much time running around being a naughty young man behind my parents' backs. But studying, the I, I therefore only got a past degree. I went to, to, to became a teacher. I was in that. I had a this moment one day where I thought I don't want to wake up at 40 staring in the mirror and seeing a 40-year-old teacher staring back at me because... I admired a lot of the teachers who had a who had a calling, but I didn't have a calling, and I felt that would make me cynical. So, therefore, I ultimately ended up, I won't give you the details, but stumbled into acting. Uh, and then I sort of came over here thinking that the next Noel Gibson was going to be born, delusion. Um, and I once I got over here, somebody said the fateful words to me at a party, have you ever thought of writing to supplement your income? Um, I contacted Grundy's, did a submission, uh found I had this skill I'd never written for. I found I had this skill that I never knew, which is like a strewed story like toothpaste. And then I went into Grundy, and I was, uh, and I sort of found that wonderful armchair of the future that I had always been looking for. I was lucky enough to get three marvellous um, mentors in there, a man called Peter Penny who is still alive, and two who have since passed on, uh, the amazing Reg Watson, and my major mentor, a man called Don Batty, who I cannot think enough uh, uh, for what he did for me, so, and then it went on from there, and I just basically sacrificed my life to my job, worked my guts out, and 40 years later, I blink, and I'm a lot older, and, I've, and I'm talked about as royalty, so, you know, it's just a lot of hard work and a lot of luck, I guess.
1: Yeah. I, I believe Sons and Daughters was your first major script producing and writing credit, 170-plus episodes. So although production, technology and times in general have changed, has the art of writing changed uh, with that? Or in its simplest form, is writing for sons and daughters the same process for writing a show like Between Two Worlds?
0: Um, I think uh, uh, the budgets have changed, therefore there's a lot more one can do. I mean, they used to think back then that it was somehow a conspiracy of ineptitude going on. Um, with the sort of strip serials we had. But when you had uh, the budgets we had back then for those shows, you had to craft your story to allow it to be shootable. And so a lot of the choices you made that perhaps to those who would like higher quality drama, who were compare us to BBC drama, for, um, you know, uh, you had to make choices that allowed it to be shot in the way that it was shot. Um, now you can make bad choices and inept choices within that, that, Model, or you can make good ones I think I, was, I, I i found my feet and I was being pretty clever with sons and daughters and I think I did some some of my best plots in some honestly way back um uh, so but the, the, the 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 budgets have changed so the sort of things that I do budgetarily on between two worlds which looks a million bucks is terribly cinematic and the, the money allows me to do things in terms of cutting and location and stuff and indeed, the sort of actors we can attract. Um, you know, the, the, these have changed. Um, the craft of it, the fact that it's just sheer mind bending hard slog and gut eating tension and neurosis and that, um, is, uh, um, I think what has changed from back in those days is yeah. now, now I have a wonderful set of people, incredible set of people like my producer. Chris Mark, well, no, not my producer, that's too preparatorial. The incredible producer, Chris Mark Jones, the amazing, uh, Chris, Chris Stenders, who's the director, the setup director on, on that. Um, I have those around to make me look better because I'm very interested in what's on the page, but I tend not to be, as, because I'm quite antisocial, to be as interested in the process of, of production itself, which is quite a, has to be quite a social human to human connection process. And I tend to stay beneath the parapet in a way on my typewriter, making sure the scripts are as good as possible, and rely on amazing like Chris and Grieve to um, to run with that and and make me look as good as my words on the page can. So those things have changed. Um, yeah. Um, uh, what hasn't changed with me is I've always been inclined. See, I was a child of nineteenth-century novels. I, I you know I I, I ate them up for, um, extraordinarily in my late teens and twenties, and so I think my creative Style was formed upon Dickens and Trollope and Austin and, um, uh, uh, you, you know, those, uh, Thackeray and Wookiee Collins. There's a lot of mystery wow. in Between Two Worlds and Collins. And so I think when you look at my work, I do have a style of work, and but every writer does. I mean, Salman Rushdie will never be Jackie Collins, and Jackie Collins will never be Salman Rushdie, but they're both valid in their own arena, and I have my style. Um, and that's what I do well, and I think that Between Two Worlds is no doubt, as far as I'm concerned, I hope people agree, by far the pinnacle of where I'm it years. It's by far and away, as far as I'm concerned, by this show.
1: Okay, and we'll, we'll certainly get to Between Two Worlds at a moment. But as we flip yeah. through Sons and Daughters, uh, Home and Away, now I read online that you rewrote the first episode of Home and Away. Um, but I was actually interested to know what what was it about the first script that you believed or the network believed needed to be reworked because obviously whatever you did, the rest is history.
0: It was boring as batshit. It was boring as batshit. They made some really (laughs) bad choices. It was. It was incredibly boring. Uh, Look, the way it happened was three weeks out from shoot, John Holmes, who was an old mate of mine from from Sons and Daughters days and who I've gone on to have an incredible, you know, one of the great uh, creative Associations of my career, along with wonderful Julie McGoran um, later on. Uh, and John uh, had, was working with the rather notorious then Alan Bateman, who I'd never met. And John was three weeks out of shooting the show with the director Rick Pelletieri, and they agreed that the script just wasn't up to, to snuff. And John went to Alan and said, Look, there's a guy I think can doctor it, and, and, and he said my name. I'd sort of made some creative, some professional choices then. That had that got me a bit of a bad name because I'd actually f- got rid of some people from Sons and Daughters whose noses got out of joint. I thought I got rid of them for good reason. They thought I hadn't got, but I got a bit of a reputation for being a bit of a tough bastard. Um, because I think the show comes before individuals, quite frankly. You, you know, it's not a, it's not a pension plan. So I got rid of these people who are coasting along. Um, and Al, so the first thing Alan said to me when I was brought in was, I hear you're a bit of a bastard. And I, am not. And I think I'm actually a bit of a gentle soul. I'm just sort of very mm-hmm. Teutonic and think that the choices have to be made, have to be made. And so Alan did this to me and I didn't know what way to reply. And so I sort of suddenly heard myself saying, yeah, I hear you are too. Um, you know, and he was a very senior person in the business and he laughed and he liked the fact that I fired back at him. And from that point on, we got on really well. He became a mentor for a period of time and, and he asked me what I thought of the script. And I said, it was terribly boring. They made some big, some fundamentally wrong choices. So he then said, can you doctor it? I said, no, I can't because if I doctor this script, all I will give you is a, is a better bad script. It's got too many core problems to it. So I said, if you are prepared to throw it out the window, delay production for three weeks, I will go away and use exactly the same set, exactly the same locations, exactly the same characters, but I will write you a new open telemovie that I believe will work. And, and and he agreed to that. They delayed production three weeks. And I was sort of sitting at home on Scotland Island, madly feeding pages into the <laughs> amusingly then tax machine uh, to... Um, to get the thing up and and, and shot, and, that, that, and that's what, what what happened. I mean, it, it, it was a crazy time. but um, So I never say I created Home and Away because that would be wrong because a lot of work was done before I came along, but I certainly recreated it. Uh, and then I was the script producer for the first 18 months and then Alan left and John and I followed Alan across the Chiang Mai.
1: I'm just uh, writing down a headline for podcast. Beverly Lee says the original Home and Away was boring as batshit. There we go.
0: That's a good oh, Yeah. Oh, don't, don't make it. Don't make it a headline. I mean, I've got. I'm only I, joking. I have, a, I have. No, I have a habit of being really honest in these interviews, so I don't see the point of me coming into these interviews and just sort of like spitting out pro forma bullshit. Yeah. Um, no, and that's... I tend to be quite honest. And I've been to interviews before. And I got myself. Um, I won't say what I said, but I got myself really in trouble where i actually had an interview with a journo who i thought the interview was over and they asked me the question what do you think of the australian film industry and thinking that the interview was over i just i had various opinions upon the australian film industry at that time and i made a statements which had nothing to do with the point of the interview and so the headline came out emblazoning my statement about the film industry, and so I, you know, I tend to get myself into trouble. I call it my interview to reps. Um, so yeah, let's just say, I, I, you know, I, I believe these things, and I believe in saying them as long as they're not being cruel to people. But yeah, that that's how this was. Use you, you, you. I think I think I would prefer the headline which started with with royal. We'll, we'll go back to royal. Well, the <laughs> <laughs> I'll
1: pick up where you um said you know you went to uh, nine. Some might have been surprised, but you got home and away off, obviously, off the ground and, and left seven after 18 months and went to nine where I imagine that was your time where you did water routes
0: and RTS and Halifax and things. Oh, Um, yeah, but I wanted to establish the basis on which I did that. I went over there with Alan because Alan said to John and me, go to nine. He sang this siren song of "Let's go over there and make this amazing new show." And we went over there and we made this show. That I've had, I've had three stinkers in my career. I, I think all of them had some merit to them, but, but you know, all of them had reasons for not, 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 not working. And the first stinker was "Family and Friends," a show at Channel Nine, which you know didn't work, um, and it was really flawed. And uh, uh, and so th- then after that. When Alan got booted from Nine, uh, the two people that Nine kept, John Holmes went on to Channel 10, and they kept me and Janine Faithful, an old, another old chum from back in the day. And um, I sort of hung around there because it was sort of comfort and it was good. I, I liked the people there and it was comfort. And I sort of became um, a script sort of, in inverted commas, executive. I would look at other people. So I, I worked with Water Rats. I worked with Halifax. I worked with all of those shows. Um, Murdercore, I think, was one of them, um, uh, as as the sort of guy in the network who was Chris Noble's sort of like script sidekick. Um, and, look, I did it because it, it, it sort of had – it became the comfort trap um, and uh, it was the easy place to be. Um, and then I got cancer and I survived cancer. And I suddenly thought, what the hell am I doing here, just of uh, not creating but sitting here and writing notes on other people's work. Uh, and, and that's when Alan Bates came out calling after that period of self-assessment became a calling and, and, and said, I'd like you to come over seven and create, um, a, a medical series for us, which became All Saints. So that period I would call the, my creative downtime. And, you know, it was, um, I have some happy memories of it, but I also feel that they were creatively wasted years, but I don't know, maybe reading all those. In those years, I read a hell of a lot of things that showed me how not to write. Oh. I'm not talking about shows that got money. I used to have to assess projects that came in. And trust me, submitted projects are 90% exercises in self-delusion. So you're reading 10% of good stuff, and you can see what this good stuff is in the extreme. I learned a shitload more from uh, the, the, project, the 90% projects that, that were just – dreadful, uh, and and, and I, went, I won't do that, I won't do that, I won't do that, I won't do that. So it was maybe a a, a, a learning period as well. So I have happy memories because of some of the people there, um, but it was a bit of a blank in my creative career, for sure.
1: Well, when you returned to Seven um, as network script executive and John Holmes returned to Seven also as head of drama, the two of you obviously yes. created a number of shows, in, including All Saints. But So tell me about this partnership
0: with... Um, with John Holmes because it seems very important. It's it's a partnership based on total trust. Um, I writers are all paranoid, especially when they get overworked. And I have spent you know I am a, I am a workaholic, and so um, I can get overworked. And John was the person I trusted to always tell me. The truth, and I think sometimes you, you know, you know, I told me 90% said about these 90% writers. Sometimes writers need somebody to say to them, you think it's good, but it's not. I mean, nobody writes any, everybody who writes something thinks it's good, or else you wouldn't have written it. Um, but you need that person who you trust, like Julie McGoran does now, who can say to you, you haven't got it this time, there. and you know that it's being said to you for only one reason, and that is because it's true, not because there's a second agenda and all that sort of stuff. And trust me, the business I'm in is riddled with second agendas. Um, And so the total trust with John, he's a wonderful, decent, funny – I can't rave about John enough as a person. He's a wonderful guy. And we we formed this bond, and and, and he would laugh at my – I'm eccentric, you know. And so he would laugh at my eccentric, reasonably endearing eccentricities. Mm-hmm. And I would, you know, I'd laugh at his funny jokes. And we, we, we mucked along together really trusting each other. And, that, and, and, and in, in, in showbiz, I've been lucky. I found him, then I found Julian McGuire. And to find, then I found Chris. I find three people mm-hmm. who are all decent and all whom you can trust. I mean, I'm triple-blessed. Um, And I need that because my skill, my true skill is storytelling. My true skill is the page. It's not interpersonal skills. It's not, um, you know, I'm a storyteller um, and, and those people I knew would have my back and those people I knew would facilitate me to the best of the degree they could to realize whatever my in inverted commas, which sounds wanky, vision is. Um, and so, yeah, I've been a lucky bugger. And so, yeah, back to John, he's an amazing guy.
1: Well, going in a different direction now, I definitely, I definitely have a show in mind, uh, very passionate about that fizzes category. Is there a show you created or wrote that you think finished too early? For whatever reason, there might have been poor ratings, network decision,
0: oh, whatever always, it is. Always Greener, always greener, full
1: stop. Oh, always my goodness, greener. yeah, that oh. is definitely the one, Always Greener, that was my number one.
0: Yeah, yeah, I broke my heart, broke my heart. Um, it was a wild, silly, funny, wacky show. I think it was cancelled on like about 1.4 million or something. I can't remember what it was, but it was, it was a good figure. Um, the same as the uh, place to call home was was finished at a seven on, on on about I think one point two million. I mean, it dipped for one week. It dipped to about eight hundred and something because it had some huge thing against it, and that was the figure that used to drive me nuts. That the figure, the press would quote as the reason why it had been cancelled for one week against major opposition. It dropped the other week, you at know, other times it was all above a million. Um, you know, there was that that died not on ratings; it died on. On 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 money and politics. Um, so, but always Karina, Look, it was a a lovely show. It was a without being too saccharine. At at, at the age of fifty, I found um, I've been very lucky with with love in my life. But I found the great love of my life, um, and um, uh, we're not together. But but he's still the great love of my life. And uh, I found this love, and um, I remember saying, and I don't want your podcast listeners to vomit, but I remember saying in one of my sort of like more high-flow and romantic moments to Jamie, "You took the sun out of the sky and put it into my heart, so I could shine it onto the page." Although that is fairly sort of vomitously Hallmark card, um, uh, it is true. I mean, he he turned a a, 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 a dreadful cynic into an optimistic cynic. And out of that, if you look at Always Greener, it's a show that's both um, tart and sweet and and its eccentricities. It flips between both and it has all those sort of types of fancy and stuff like that. So I think that died too soon because it was very different. It was very unique. You know, it, it won the... um uh, note the bit of tone in my voice. Uh, it won the uh, – um, uh, it was nominated for an international Emmy for, for Best Drama in the year which the AFI, by the way, didn't even bother to nominate in the Best Drama category. Uh, in brackets, no, uh, no business there. Ha, ha, ha. I don't think so. Um, and, um, yeah, look, it was a wonderful, delightful show, and it, it died.
1: And I did wonder if we're on the same page with it. It was definitely always greener. So you did mention a place to call home. I mean, the, in the media yeah. we sort of had it that it was it, it was rating right right to seven, but not in the right demographic. But anyway, the the, the loyal fan base were very loud, and Foxell picked up the show and it obviously had a rest of a successful run. Was that a good feeling that the fans had some push in the return of the show?
0: Uh, that was a, a, it. Was a interesting, yeah. Uh, look, uh, it was wonderful that they that they rose up and and stormed stormed their case. I mean, I think there's a shocking ageism in the attitude to to you know um, parishes. It's just enormous ageism. I mean, old, old old pricks don't count is the whole attitude to the young millennials wandering around advertising offices. I mean, old people don't have money to spend. Um, and so there's this whole attitude that if, you know, if you're in this, 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 and this, you're valid. And we had a huge amount of people in that. And therefore, for some unknown reason, this sort of ageist bullshit landscape, it, you know, it, it, somehow they couldn't sell time or something. Um you know, for God's sake, fill it up with ads for Depend pads. I mean, you know, you're going to get people rushing to, the, to a to the chemist to buy them. Um, <laughs> and, but no, we had an old, we had an older audience. That was a joke. Yeah. We had an older, or we had an older audience, and it was a very fierce audience. And this show has an incredibly loyal and fierce following around the world. I just got to – honestly, I'm not making this up just for this podcast. I got a message from my friend in the States today to say he'd gone for a, whole, a, a trip to get out of COVID-ridden L.A. to Washington State and was sitting in this sort of, like, place. And this woman who was there, like, seeing was Australian, said, oh, have you, do you know of this show called A Place to Call Home? And and I've had a number of my friends who all around the world have gone to places and the, the people they run into, the show that they say, have you heard of this, is a place to call home. So I has got this incredibly loyal following around the world, um, of, of, of maybe of, of, of old people, but it's, it's sold in 120 countries. It's done incredibly well. So I, I, I don't know. I still don't get that somehow or other these people, just because they crank over a certain age maybe, Yeah. Um, uh, You know, uh, it 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 makes the show less valid. I mean, I think it's sad because I think there was some incredibly important things that a younger demographic could have learned from watching the show, given the fact that it was very, you know, went into you know homophobia back in those days, and you know the fact that a lot of gay people were were were, were, you know given electric shock treatment to try and changed them. It went into anti-Semitism, it went into racism, it went into classism. It is probably one of the most inverted commas woke show over six years that's been on Australian television. But somehow or other, the Uh, the younger demographic did not wake up to the woke show so... um, I'm
1: I'm starting to get a little bit old now because I'm only in my late 30s and I've watched every single
0: episode of A Place to Go Home and loved it so am I too old? (laughs) All all, all the young people who watched it that I know of I mean, you know, the... uh, the, the sort of like the tales I tell is that, you know, all the young people who watched it. I'm going to tell you, I'd love to, I'm going to tell you a story though. And this is what I think happened with the industry. And it might be me trying to justify myself, but I think this is what happened with A Place to Call Home in the industry or amongst certain, you know, um, hip groups. Um, I wanted to write the anti Mills and Boone, Mills and Boone show. In other words, I wanted to take all the tropes of, of the sort of Mills and Boone romantic fiction and then I wanted to subvert them. And I think what happened with that show was it went to air and it was promoed fair enough, I'm not criticizing chromos, it was promoted in a fairly sort of like Mills and Booney romantic fiction way. And they promoed away from the tough edge stuff that the show was full of. Um, so I think anybody coming and forming a judgment on the show from just the the promos would have thought that it was a bit of um, costume frock um, saccharine stuff. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, and so I, I and I came across this on a panel because I can be a bit bolsy when I'm when I'm I came across this on a panel once where um, a guy on the panel said in a slightly or to my ear, patronising tone, "Oh, blah 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 drama, not like the soft." And, um, and 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 m- 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 mushy or gentle or whatever stuff I can't remember his words. Like Seven Drama makes, yeah. like Pats of the Rafters in a place to call home. And I don't think he meant to be offensive, but I am you know the panel thinking, um, <laughs> "F you, you, f you, you see," um, you know, because I, I really flared. I thought, "How dare you have the gall and the rudeness to sit on this panel and say this when I'm the guy who created this show?" And I sort of thought, so I thought, "No, I'm going to challenge him." And I said to him, "I." So I said, you haven't watched A Place to Call Home, have you? And he, I said, no, 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 no. You can't have watched it because if you'd watched it, there's no way you could describe it as a safe and gentle drama. I said, it's a very tough, hard-edged drama. And I did that rap where I just told you about the woman and the, the whore and the closet gay guy jumping out the edges. I said, How, you cannot describe a show that is that narrative as a soft and safe drama. So I said, I am asking you now in front of this audience, have, have you watched my show or not? And he shamefacedly mumbled out, no, that he hadn't. <laughs> and I just zinged him and I said, you watch my show? You can look me in the face and say whatever negatives you want about it because that is your right. But how dare you get up on this platform and diss my show when you haven't watched a minute of it? And I think that in my head is what went wrong with place. A lot of people dismissing it in their mind because they made a pre-assumption about what it was. Now, I've done that with shows myself before. But one of the interesting things for me is any young person who's come to it, getting back to the young person thing that led me off onto this diatribe <laughs> um, uh, and, and, and wound, um, any young person who watched it all said, oh, we, lo- we really liked it, in a surprised voice. And I remember one of my friends saying to me, Oh, I watched your show the other It's very good, isn't it, with this really surprised tone in the voice? My attitude is, oh, well, yeah, thank you. So, yeah. that, I think, it, it had a preconception to it, but people who watched it immediately saw the preconception was not so. Yeah. And let's go. Into- I actually had an example last night. No, I had an example last night, I watched the first episode of Morning Wars, which I'd been, you know, oh. avoiding watching because I thought it was just going to be. Um, certain something. And then I watched the first episode last night and I loved it. And I went, oh, it's not what I expected it to be at all. It's fantastic. I thought it was going to be sort of like really hashtag, overly hashtag PC, you know, um, bit of flag waving. But it's, it's wonderfully exciting, beautifully written, and very nuanced in terms of the, the, the things thats dealing with, so I can be guilty of it too, so I'm not saying there's anything wrong with those people. We all do that with shows. we all we all make a pre preconception, but I think that's what place suffered from.
1: I'm writing that recommendation.
0: Now. Since two thousand and thirteen, Bombus has donated over one hundred million socks, underwear, and t-shirts to those facing homelessness.
1: Uh, going into an, another zone, I'm just wondering how important the actor is to the script. I mean, can you have the perfect script and an average actor and still make it work? I ask that because you've obviously worked with the likes of Georgia Parker and Teddy John Howard, Rebecca Gidding, Tony Hazelhurst, Eric Thompson. In, in programming um, a network, in programming a network, it's they say it's content, content, content. Um, what is it for developing a show? Are all the elements, production, scripts, actors, locations, weighed the same, or is, or is the script the most important thing or the actor the
0: most important thing? Oh, no, I could write the best script in the world and the wrong actors could come in and trample over it. Um uh, you know, uh, I, I don't want to keep going back to between, look, I, I've been really fortunate. We, you know, Ma- Marta and, 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 and Noni came out, especially Noni, because I had a totally different idea in my head about what Elizabeth would be. And then Noni came in and gave, gave this fantastic audition, but a really different read. And then the rest was history. And, thank God, she came in and, 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 and brought what she brought to it, which was sort of better mm. in execution. And I had, I think the script was really good, but I think her execution made it even better. Marta came in and gave exactly what I expected, and deliriously and gloriously so. Um, so there was no surprises there, but there was certainly, yeah. So, so you know, having people like them come in and without them taking material and 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 bringing what they bring to it, it doesn't matter. I could write the best script in the world. And could come up, like especially because I write melodrama, and um, and and I. I proudly say I write melodrama. That's the nineteenth-century novel, You know, um, there's nothing wrong with melodrama. I think melodrama is a fantastic form, and I think it's wrongly looked down on by a lot of people who mute their drama for fear of becoming melodrama. Um, and um, yeah, and 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 so, uh, the, the, if an actor comes in and plays my show with a wink and a nod, and my shows with a wink and a nod to the screen, then they're intolerable. The only way, like, between two worlds. Philip, Hermione, Sass, the young people, they all came in. Blazy Bears, they all came in and they took this show that is pretty heightened and rich and they played it for the complete truth of it. But the truth of Between Two Worlds is the truth of the situation like Jeffrey Epstein and Ghislaine Maxwell. It's the truth, the truth of the situation of Prince Andrew in the palace. It's the truth of the situation of, of, of um, Johnny Depp and Amanda Heard, uh, um, isn't it? Um, it's, those, it's the truth of that sort of thing. And there's this whole so – with so much of Australian drama – there's this whole muting, you know, if we don't go there and, and, and take the the, the, the emotions and to the height, then we're actually having people as they really are. Well, that's nonsense. That's not how people often are. And if the actors, going back to the actors, came into my place, into my shows and played it as camp, then it would be intolerable. But they came in and they embraced the truth of that world. And it's not an invalid truth. It could happen. I'm sure it has happened in the homes of certain very wealthy people, certain versions of it. But they play it with an embracing of the truth, just as I don't, you know, ha, 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 I'll be really camping and write melodrama. I sit down and go, I want to write a rich, heightened story. Um, and 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 so the marriage, if I get the wrong actor, my text can sound pretty fruity. But if I get the right actor, it sounds like really Ripsnorton's uh, stuff. Now, Philip gave me a beautiful compliment, and I'm not trying to be um, arrogant and say I'm Shakespeare, for God's sake, but Philip, who has done a lot of classic theatre, said to me of my dialogue, which I wanted to write really rich text, I didn't want to have people talking in mundanities, he said he was really enjoying with my dialogue on the show because um, he said, you know, you, you write rich text, you don't write, you know, you you have, you write words like marbles in the mouth to be negotiated and got out in a, the way that they should be. And so that was a beautiful compliment from somebody like him who dealt with so many classic texts who recognized that I think you can give actors very, very rich text, very, very um, uh, uh, metaphorical, me- metaphor fulfilled, you know, um, uh, rhythmic text, and, 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 but you get the wrong actor, unlike, you know, an actor unlike Philip who can't play it. Mm. And it sounds like, you know, di- death by di- word diarrhea. So, yeah, it is essential, I think, given the way I write and, and the in inverted commas in my more melodramatic shows like Place and this one, that I have actors who can negotiate the dialogue and make me sound as I intend to sound. Yeah. Do,
1: do you actually get a say in, in casting? Because I, I can imagine when you're writing something, in your mind you're thinking this, like you're sort of picturing, for example, Marta Dusseldorf or something like that. You, Did you get then, I've written this script and I think you should go down this path. Do you have any say in casting?
0: Yeah, oh, yeah I'm there. I mean, you know, wonderful Anne Faye, of course, with, with, with Between Two Worlds, you know, they, they kept... Uh, they come up, she comes up with the ideas, uh, her and Lee, the off-sider. uh, they come up with ideas to put at us. Then you've got, you know, Julie, you've got Chris, you've got the director, you know, the set up director, Chris Stenders. Um, they're there, of course. Um, but I, for some roles, I had somebody in my head. I had, um, who's I had? Um, well, Sass Wiseman uh, as Sophia in Between Two Worlds. I always wanted her, but I can't go in, nor should I be able to go in and say, I want Sass to play that role. I went and I said, I've had Sass in my head as I've written this. Um, I, I told Sass that I was writing something for her, but she's a sensible unprofessional to know that's no guarantee, that I can't guarantee that. Um, um, Dominic Auburn, a young actor, who, who who I think is a very, very good young actor. I actually wrote the role of Bart in the show for him, but the show was so long in development that he sort of aged out of being able to do that. And I, I really like Dom's work. So I wanted in it. so I actually created a character um, that comes in very briefly at the beginning of the show. Yeah. But then by the end of the 10 hours, it's become a major character. And I said, I see Dom doing this <laughs> equally so. Dom had to come in and audition. So I can say what I think. But I could be terribly wrong. I mean, um, you know, the, the thing with Noni, I had always seen Wendy Hughes in my head. Um, uh, and then Noni came in and gave this totally different reading that was, uh, I don't mean to be rude to read in peace, Wendy, but I think Noni came in and gave a shitload better interpretation than probably Wendy ever would oh, have. Interesting. Um, uh, oh, going back to Always Greener, I'd had various people in my head and John Holmes said, what about... Um. uh Oh, how awful, John. Um,
1: John Howard and Tini's. John Howard.
0: Yeah. What about yeah? John Holmes, John Howard. John Howard. What about John Howard? And I went. Oh, I don't see John. John came in, and he, he. You know, he suddenly once he had read it, it was like you couldn't imagine anybody else. So yes, I can have vision, but I, I love being proved right, and but I also equally love deliciously being proved maybe. Wrong in the tact. So um, yeah, it's, it's collaborative. Um, we all get together and and um, we have, we can be of a mind, or if we're not of a mind, we have a respectful stoush about it.
1: Yeah, uh, different tact. And um, I just find this a fascinating question. I don't know if you if, if you do. I was wondering if there was a the time you had a storyline that you had wrote um, and that you were talked out of by the network, or vice versa. You know, vice versa, the network wanted to go in a different direction, and you ultimately stuck. Uh, your heels in to go in a different direction. I ask this because I wonder if there was a sliding doors moment where someone, uh, for example, uh, they'd actually originally planned to kill Elf Stewart off home and away in the first 12 months, but it was blocked and then the rest is history. Is there a storyline from it uh, from any show that stands out that if it was heading in its original direction, we would have missed out on
0: dot, dot, dot? They were going to. I, I, I created the first eighteen months of storylines, and as far as I'm concerned, there was never any intention of no, killing. No, no,
1: that was that was an ex- No, that, that was definitely an ex- like a, a hypothetical. Oh, 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 you just made exactly. that example. I made that example. Oh, okay. I'm just wondering if there was a show oh, no, no. where we
0: oh, massive, we know classic, how it's classic. gone. Yes. No, classic, massive one. Um, I said I uh, was working on All Saints. I was going mm, something's not right and something's missing. Blah 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 blah. And I came up with this idea, and I went to John. And told him, and he went, I really love it. And and then we went to the programmer with it uh, at that time, and um, he didn't, but we stuck our ground, and the rest was history. And it was the decision to make Georgie e. Parker's character a nun. Oh. Now, that show would have been utterly different if Georgie's character had not been a nun. I wanted Earth, and I thought, in this day, you know, why, why a sensible nurse? You know, why on Earth can't she? You know, at least have casual sex, for God's sake, you know, why can't blah, blah, blah. And there'll be all the old fashioned tropes of why she can't. She's too busy or she's got a kid or she's that. And nothing. he said to John, if she was a nun, she couldn't have sex, could she? Whoa. And then he said, uh, I think the words, I think the words were something, and I don't mean to be rude to the guy, but my memory is the words were something jokingly, hmm. um, Jokingly, naff, like, oh, nuns aren't fuckable, uh. Um, you know. But that's, uh, you know, that's the sort of, I'm not accusing it. That's the sort of silly nonsense you say when you're in a relaxed room. For God's sake, you know, giving responses. But there was a bit like, well, she's a nun, so if she's not, they didn't see the tension in it. They saw rather the 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 the, the and, and I think that show would not have been anywhere near as successful if George's character had not been a nun, and then we couldn't have done that story with Eric coming in later on. um uh which was Susan's suggestion, that story, um, of, of Eric coming in and, and then having had the history before she went in to be to become another. And so, you know, she wasn't a virgin and they had the, the 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 tension between them. So that would have been a huge change. Um I've had stories that rightly or wrongly I've been told I I had a big one I really wanted to do on um a place to call home. Um and the the, net, the fox told, felt that it. I didn't think it did, but fox felt felt, felt that it changed the, um, that. It was, that it might have been a bit jumping the shark, and so I respected that. They felt that. I felt I could have done it without jumping the shark, but you know, it's their show, so I was happy to find another direction. And the other direction paid off very well anyway. So, yeah, I mean, they're the client, so I think if they feel uncomfortable with the story, but I'll certainly fired it if I. I was happy to jettison that one because I could actually think of a better one, mm. but I wouldn't have been happy to jettison the, 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 the nun thing because I thought that I could see the, the, the benefit of that. So yeah, that's part of the normal process.
1: I'm glad yeah. I asked that one now. I didn't know about the, the nun thing. Yeah, I think it's a good question. Yeah, it's a good question. Yeah, um, a good question. Was, let's talk about a, a, a show that no one's probably ever heard of. Um, one of your smaller shows called Pack to the Rafters. Um,
0: oh yeah.
1: <laughs> I, I'm wondering at what point you thought this was big. I mean, it could have been at the early stages of thinking. It could have been after you secured the cast. It could have been after watching the pilot, or it could have been after the first night's nice ratings came in. You know, it was this two million business. What was there glimpses at any stage that you were onto something big?
0: I felt, and John felt, we had lightning in a bottle. The network was very nervous. Look, the network's been very nervous about all of my shows, pretty much. <laughs> Some of them with, you know, like head, like Headland and 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 Martial Law. Um with good reason. But um I was uneasy about both of those sh- to shows too, because I didn't feel they were coming together for various reasons which we won't go into. Uh but I felt with Rasters we had Lightning in a Bottle, we had Eric, we had Rebecca, we had the we had, you know, the, the wonderful young cast. Um I thought but, but most of my shows that was ahead of the zeitgeist at that point. And the network were nervous because I've always said Rafters is, 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 is a piece, of, a stick of fairy floss with a huge dollop of lemon juice in the centre. And it is, it, 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 it's a flummery of a show, but it also has a very tart edge. And so the network, I think at a time when Under, Underbelly and those more, more savvy shows were, were, rating, were the ratings ones, they were very, very nervous that it was too slight. And so... You know, success has a million fathers and failure has none. So of course, when it came out and it was a success, everybody was walking around and good on them saying that they always knew it was going to be one. But no, they didn't. They were very nervous. Um, um, not unsupportive, but they weren't nervous to be unsupportive. Whereas we felt we had lightning in a bottle and that proved to be so. Um, we never dreamt it would rate what it did. We felt it would be a comfortable success uh and then it came out the gates and that that sort of threw us um i think we're just being we're being modest um and but then that created its own set of problems because nobody was interfering when it was just in development and so nobody was interfering um you know in, in the stuff that we'd done but once it was a success then people became people that that success would be Anyway. So, uh, you know, the first, I think the first six or seven months of that show were the best of the show because nobody interfered and we just did what our instincts told us. And then from that point on, everybody started to get nervous and, 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 and there was sort of more and more as time went by, second guessing, to so let's not have any storyline that might offend the family viewers. Then, of course, we came to the famous, what I call, uh, Mastigate, uh, which was the storyline I did, like to this day I stand by because I think it was a really good story about the son who is married to the attractive wife but he forms fantasies for his right. co-worker at the office and comes home one night and his wife makes it clear that she wouldn't mind some sexual contact. He slides off that, goes into the bathroom and she walks into the bathroom which he has in a, in, uh, un, un, uh, not locked the door. Uh, inadequately locked the door, and she walks in and sees that he was masturbating, fantasizing about this woman at work. And she says to him, We have some, and it's about it's a story about marriage, about young marriage, yeah. about, you know, and it was based totally upon a story that happened to friends of mine. Um, and um, I saw nothing wrong with the story. I thought the world was pretty together about masturbation, quite frankly, by the time we got to that stage. Um, And the show went to air and the heavens opened. The shock jocks got onto it. The conservative religious groups are calling in. And the headline was, Rafters Betrays Family Audience. And I'm sitting there going, what's family audience? It's a family show. But it was never written For a family audience, it is a show about family, and this is a valid story about family. So uh, to not go on about that too much, that sort of indicated the audience on that show sort of hijacked the show. And they started saying stuff like the rafters wouldn't do that. They so over-identified with the show that they went, the rafters wouldn't do that. Well, no, you wouldn't do that, but you're not the rafters. And you put your heart and soul in something and you work seventy hour weeks and you kill yourself and you write a good honest story. You know, we were even chastised by the bloody broadcasting authority on that. And the network, for God's sake, on a story as that benign, while bloody underbelly was having tits and and, and, and pole dances oh, and absolutely. rape and murder. Left, right, that we were the ones who got a, a fine of that benign little story, we didn't show anything, Frank. For the
1: people that are listening and wondering what we're getting to between two worlds, we're getting there. Um, but because we're talking oh, about Back to the Rafters, um,
0: you're almost- I don't say, by the way, I know. not sound I know I'm being really honest here. I hope I don't sort of sound too like frenetically bullshit. I just wanted to be honest about. The no. creative process and no, okay, good. No,
1: absolutely. So, it's just we're talking about lots of things. But with, with rafters, um, obviously there's going to be the sequel back to the rafters. Um, I just yeah. wanted to ask how that's going. I just with COVID nineteen restrictions, has it has it already been shot, or are they halfway and
0: what? No, that's... they shot. I think about six, six. They shot about six weeks. They shot four episodes. Some scenes within, I think, episodes three and four were not shot for various. Scheduling reasons, so they haven't been shot. So episodes one and two, I think, have been finished. Three and four can't be finished until that extra material is shot. And five and six haven't been shot at all. So when that will, they will reconvene and do that, I don't know. Um, so that's a bit of a, a trick. Yeah.
1: I see the whole cast is back, obviously, minus uh, Jessica Moray. There's always this good old debate about, um, isn't there about recasting versus dropping a character and saying the character's living in England or something? Changing the face of a character, people have grown to love it can be a challenge. Do you know the thoughts behind the decision to recast as opposed to, you know, she's living
0: in England? Well, we couldn't, we couldn't be right. We were in the tunnel, so we couldn't rewrite. Um, I said I wouldn't go back and do the show. Um, I'll be honest and say I didn't want to go back and do the show. Um, uh, I found a reason plot wise to go back and, and revisit, I revisit it. And when it first came up, I didn't want to do it. I've got a reason in my head to go back to want to do it. And I think I've told an interesting story, um, uh, that is worth telling. Had I not found that story, I, I, I wouldn't have done it, um, uh, probably to do with the disaffection that I had felt out back at the original series. Yeah. Um, but I had a story I think that's really worth telling, a story that's of the now and it, it is, is Rafa's tonally but it does say interesting things about the world today um but i did say i wouldn't come back unless we had everyone so they got everyone um uh, then of course we were you know just for days out from shooting and uh, jess um had to make the call that she had to make for her own well-being um, uh, which everybody understood yeah. um we then had clearly had no choice but to recast. Um, and we found Georgina Haig who, you know, is is doing a wonderful job and, and, and has slotted in. So I think the audience will know why. So they will come to a believe, in goodwill. Hey, listen, the best piece of cast recasting was back in the days of Restless Years, when there was an actress who got a bit above herself and Reg Watson Reg Watson was a bit like me, I think, a man who who a very kind man, but a man who will not take any nonsense and will call nonsense out. And um, uh, this young actress had behaved badly, and when Reg set out to kick her off, um, apparently she wanted it in a way that he didn't feel was acceptable. And she sort of said something, I believe, in the apocryphal story. I'm not quoting, I'm just telling apocryphal stories. You know, well, you can't buy me anyway you know, I'm too important to the show sort of thing. So Reg went down to the writing department and said, write in a scene for this character of, um, uh, she goes to the the hairdresser. And um, they put the misbehaving actress under a hairdryer to have a change of hair colour. And when the hood raised up, uh, the dark-haired performer was now, a blonde performer played by a completely different actress, and the show went on. Oh. So, uh, and the audience continued with the show without a blink. Um, So I think if recasting is done either with that degree of campish brio, or if it's done with, you know, relative sensitivity to find a good performer like Giorgino, Physically does lie within the same parameters. I think you'll pull it off. I mean, I think if it's done cynically, then then you probably won't. Or done ineptly. But I think um, who could not go for something as campus, Stick one actress under a hairdryer and bring another actress <laughs> out. But, yeah. Can Can I ask? Um,
1: because I'm sure fans would know the answer to this question. They've put out about back to the back to the rafters, and the cast is back. Um, are you able to confirm or deny a couple of other actors that had pivotal roles in the series? Because that hasn't been mentioned. The ones I'm thinking of, ones like James Stewart as Jake, uh, Ryan Core, um Zoe Crammond, who played Emma, Brooke Satchwell and Christian Schmidt were at the end, and then there was Carbo's wife, Loretta, that was in the show.
0: Are any of these sort of characters... Let you know of back in the show. L- Loretta Loretta is back briefly, but but um uh, uh Hannah, who plays Loretta, now lives and is married with a child in, in in New Zealand, and so we we have Loretta in for a few brief scenes. We, we, we register her presence in Cabo's life, but we were not in a position to write her in more than that, simply because of of Hannah's availability um the other characters look you know we're coming back it's called back to the rafters but it's back to the rafters yeah. and those characters were i would call rafters spill and i think if you go back and all you do is you pick up everybody and you move on and all you sort of really do is i didn't want to come back and and, and just just do some sort of like you know like dogged continuation of I wanted to come back and see that their lives had changed significantly in the intervening six years, how it had changed, and then put a dilemma into that around the central rafters with some new characters thrown in to make it a bit interesting, bit interesting, something a bit fresh. We've been Donna back too, by the way, um, uh, uh, Julie's friend, because Meredy is just del- delicious comedy. Uh, but, But, you know, uh, characters like Jake and Kobe, and you know Ryan's character, and 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 uh, 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 apart from that, you know um, uh, Jimmy is in Home and Away anyway, so you know he can't yeah. be across both shows. So you know there were good, there were good reasons, there were good narrative reasons too. I just I, I wasn't interested in picking up in some sort of as though the show never stopped and, and just sort of like dribbling and eating. And I knew I could because I had lost because the thing that I've shared with you that I had lost my mojo for the show, the only way I could actually come back and get a mojo back was to sort of do this slightly recreative thing where you put them six years down the track and Ruby's now a nine year old and, um, you know, and they've got friends, they're in a country town and they've got friends in the country town and um, and the, so the kids are in the city and, you know, it, it it's about a fracturing family. Mm. You know, we, Pack to the Rafters is about a fractured family coming back together under the roof, same roof. Back to the Rafters is about a fractured family coming to terms, especially Julie, with what does it mean to you when that, what, what does it do to your soul if that fracturing starts to to being a family and i thought that was worth saying in this day and age when the the notion of family is you know and and that was a sort of like thematic thing that i started to build what they will people will see as the narrative and had i not found that i wouldn't have come back but people somebody else could have come in and done it and good luck to them but to bring back we were going to bring back people like Ryan and a couple of the other characters and just as a sort of homage to the show in the final scene in the final episode. When it got to doing that, we examined that original idea. First of all, Ryan wasn't available, um, and it was a very brief appearance. It was almost like we hoped they'd come in to do a nod to, well, we were part of this show, and so we're happy to just be here in this scene as some sort of, like, guest brief, you know, cameo homage. Yeah. Um, the no- the notion didn't work out in the way that I thought would have made it valid, so we, we-, we did jettison than that, um, and those people do wonderful jobs. On, on, um, you know, Rachel has moved on in New York to a different life, and and you know, Jake is out of her life for various reasons. You, we picked you know, um, Toby. Actually, I think it isn't even mentioned because it's it's what happens in life. Yeah. People move on. We move on with our life, and people are left behind. So I, I didn't want to. I, I, I just I did that to allow myself to come back to it because without that, I especially because I'd just done Between Two Worlds, which was the pinnacle of my career and of my achievement. And psychologically, to go from the pinnacle of my achievement back to a former creation that I had become disaffected from and sort of try to, you know, revisit it in some way, that was a huge psychological struggle for me. Yeah. Well, we're all... Like- which I think I succeeded in... Uh, which I, succeeded. I think I succeeded in pulling it off, but time will tell. Yeah,
1: and that, uh, the Australian audience can't wait for it. Um,
0: obviously, it's much anticipated. I want to go um, completely. Yeah, look, look I, You know, I, I hope. I hope. You know, it's, it's interesting going with 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 Amazon because they have their own. Um, uh, it, it will be Amazon's yeah. rafters. It won't be Seven's rafters. It, it's 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 um, it's been shaped through an Amazon lens, um, and so yeah, it will be interesting to see. Um, one hopes it's it's a great success for them. Um, For sure. uh, Time will tell.
1: On a complete uh, 180, your Wikipedia page, you know, we're going to Wikipedia, always the trusted source of information, it says says Lee is openly gay and in 2007 he was nominated as one of the 25 most intellectual lesbian and gay people in Australia by online digital media site Same, Same were you involved in a particular gay rights movement or is the influential part linked to the fact that you were a gay person
0: in an influential
1: role in australia
0: i think i'm a gay person who has been who never made any secret of you know, oh yeah early on of course I, I you know made a secret of it um because you had to i mean otherwise you'd have shit beaten out of you at school i mean i think some kids deal with at least despite supposedly the world being more open but um yeah you know there was there was shame, there was secrecy. Uh, my father never knew I was gay. um how the hell not, given the fact he met all my boyfriend uh, <laughs> but people are blind me you, know, you know these days it 's gay, 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 gay. choose you' a gay back then, an ordinary suburban bloke like my father because I used to, my certainly my partner through the twenties, and I used to have a lot of very glamorous young female friends'cause i i i I, I love women. I'm just not sexually attracted to them. I, I like to say that I love the table setting. I just don't want to eat the meal. <laughs> um, and um, uh, and so um, we had lots of beautiful female friends who were always there. So I think my dad thought that my then partner, Fred, who's still my longest friend in life, um, uh, that we were living the life of the bachelor gay as to think I'm gay. Um, and so because people didn't, Suspect gayness back then. It wasn't, you know, it didn't sort of you didn't get images oh. on television. So I managed to sort of like sail through. But when I once I went into the workplace, working at well, certainly going to theatre, who cares, you know? And then going to Grundy's, where my all my mentors were gay. Um, I didn't feel that I had to. I didn't sort of walk in and flounce around and and, and talk about my weekend sexual antics or anything nonsensical like that. But then I don't think, nor should anybody, gay, straight, or whatever. Yeah. Um, and and but but slowly but surely, once I started to do my own shows, being gay characters to a greater or lesser extent in all of of, of, of my shows. I mean, I think the, the 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 pinnacle of my gay storytelling is the six season arc. Of the story of James Bly, yeah. which is a major, major gay story. But that uh, came after. I think I got it back then. I don't know. I think they just cast around for a few names to whack up there and make it look good. And uh, the, the sort of the pin landed on me, I guess, when they sort of dangled it over who's who. Um, and um, yeah. Um, and it was, it, 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 it was, it was nice to feel that. You know, um, yeah. maybe some young gay creative out there. But, you know, my great my great attitude though is I haven't got, I haven't ever written a gay piece because I I write commercial television. and I don't think that that you know I I am beholden to the people who I write for who make, who put the money forward to write something I think that will rate. And overall. A show that is gay, 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 even today is niche mm. uh, and and it's not when i'm paid to create a commercial show, I think I am obliged to not do things that will push it into niche, which will get as high as rating as possible mm. uh, but in all of my shows, I put. What I like about them is I'm a bit like Mary Poppins, and a spoonful of sugar will help make them go down. So a, a lot of the social media made my heart sing on a place to a home where people go, oh, those poor gay people have had it tough over the years, haven't they? Or a young person, gay person will write, I never knew that happened because so many young gay people these days have no bloody idea about our history. Yeah, They have no idea in the 50s that families were sending their sons into institutions for... Um, you know, for, for shock therapy, and in, and in the worst cases, lobotomies, no. to actually change their behaviour, and 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 that is true, and that was all. That story was all based upon research fact. So, it it it, it makes my heart sing that my audience, hopefully over the years, have got through my spoonful of sugar—that is the, the commercial show—and have come to the message I have inside, and that is a lot of people. Don't like gay people until they meet one. And then they go, oh, those gays aren't bad, really, are they? Because they just think that we're madly sex-obsessed, mm. you know, people rushing around. And in a lot of cases, thinking that we're pedophiles, for God's sake. Mm. Uh, despite the fact that statistics say that most, most pedophilia takes place within the family unit with heterosexuals, but that's beside me. Mean. Um, and so, the, the, you know, the, the, you know, it's, it's it, to me to, I to work very hard to get the message where I think it's important to those people who don't know gay people and maybe through the show, like with James Bly, they now know a gay person and they've felt empathy for a gay person. Mm. I mean, I think most gay very specifically gay made pieces of television or film, which I might love to watch myself, overall are preaching to the converted, because nobody's going to turn them on who, who doesn't, are not of that mindset. So, and I'm not diminishing people for doing that. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've seen lots of things I love, you know, um, myself, but they do preach to the converted. And my slightly insidious thing through my career is to try to plant a seed of them of minds. Yeah. Um, there are those that you'll never make empathetic, and, you know, and they're the ones who drip vile vitriol in messages that talk about gays should die, but you're never going to get through to them anyway.
1: Yeah, this is actually taking me back to, that was some of the most powerful stuff I've seen on, on TV, the James Bly story. It was. Um, I, I wasn't obviously through an era when that kind of thing happened, so watching it now, it just seems the fact that that could have happened just seems completely barbaric.
0: Um, and it's just, it was very, very hard to watch. Um, yeah, it, it did my head in a bit at the time. The gay press never picked up on that storyline, um, which disappointed me a little. You know, it sort of it existed, but it the, 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 the never sort of like slightly got out to the to the, uh, the wide gay viewership that that it existed. And I think it's one of the best gay. Storylines there's ever been on Australian television, he says immodestly. Um, So, yeah, that that sort of disappointed me. And it also, um, that particular storyline, I think, shows the thumbs and nose of that particular gentleman once again who sat on that platform and described the show as, you know, soft and fuzzy.
1: Okay, so there's a little show that you have uh, created called Between Two Worlds. I was was saving the best for last. (laughs) Um, Thanks, mate. I've watched the first three episodes thus far, so so obviously first tell the listeners the basic premise of the, of the show. What is between two worlds?
0: Between two worlds is a uh, well. First of all, it's a rip snortin', twisty turny. Don't presume you know what's going to happen because it probably won't happen. I don't know if you feel for the first three episodes, but the show does keep pulling the narrative rug out from under your feet. I don't know if you feel that watching that, but you think you know where it's going to go, and you sort of go, oh, that's what was happening in the first episode, or I didn't realise that was going on. And so it is a show that I think, and and increasingly as it goes along, it narratively surprises. Uh, So I, I first of all looked at the landscape, the zeitgeist, okay, we talked about the zeitgeist. The zeitgeist to me was, uh, there are some very good shows on Australian television, but when I when I watch them, I might, well, they range from I will watch them and go, I don't care for this, or I will watch them and I will go, well, yeah, I, I, I like this, but it's not surprising me. And I wanted to write a show where people came, I think we'd stopped – and there was no ongoing narrative imperative. It's a bit like the shows like Deadwood to me, and even Game of Thrones. It's probably, that's probably sin to most, a lot of people. But I'm making my way very slowly through Game of Thrones because every time I watch an episode, I like it. But I don't finish that episode and desperately feel the need to go on and watch another one, say, unlike maybe a show I watched recently called The Leftovers or, you know, watched Morning Wars last night and I can't wait to continue to watch that. Um, but, you know, that's just me. But um, it, it, it's what I call narrative imperative. Deadwood never had it. Deadwood was brilliant, but I could watch an episode of Deadwood not watch another one for two months and then I would watch it and I made my way through it that way. A lot of Australian television, I think, Australian television drama has good drama within the hour, but you don't necessarily finish the hour and go, I must watch the next hour.
1: Yeah.
0: I still wanted to write a show where once you start watching it, you really want to know what happens next. It's the old you know, um, child, the people waiting on the docks of Boston for the next episode of the old curiosity shop, shop screaming at the ship as it came into dock, is little Nell dead? Is little Nell dead?
1: Mm.
0: You know, the ultimate cliffhanger. You know, they came down to the dock in their multitudes screaming this boat came in carrying the latest edition latest episode of the magazine containing old curiosity shot screaming is little nell dead is little nell dead so i came to it with a slight is little nell dead attitude i wanted people to want to keep watching um and i wanted also though to reinvent This is all technical stuff. I wanted to reinvent the cliffhanger. I don't know if you've noticed, but um, the show finishes, but every episode begins time-wise, at the end of the previous episode, and we see events of the previous episode from a different angle that makes you not only want to know where the cliffhanger goes, but actually... Adjust your vision of what the cliffhanger meant. Yeah. I think you'll know what I mean having seen it. So I want to play with that technique. I wanted to, to, to twist and turn. I wanted to surprise the audience. Um, you know, I work, I, I, I think one of the major things that happens in the first hour, you suddenly see by episode three was something else entirely again than what you told it was, it was. Don't want to do any spoilers. Um, i I hope you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. Um, uh, I wanted to um but then I also wanted to in a way take two stories that I really liked and okay Let's study again. Genre convention: We are told that a show should be a thriller. We are told it should be a, a warm family drama. We are told it should be a melodrama. We are told it should be a science fiction show, or whatever. One of my favourite movies ever is a movie, a Japanese movie called Audition, where the first half of the show is like Sleepless in Seattle, so the Japanese, um, and the second half is probably one of the most unwatchably horrific horror stories I've ever seen, um, where a guy who, with a little son who can't, whose wife's died, you can't find love. He's a movie producer, says to him, I know how you'll find the next love. I'll set up a series of faux auditions for a movie that will never get made, and I'll bring these girls in, and you can be my assistant, and you can watch the girls auditioning, and then you can choose who you want to ask out, hmm. which he does, and then he meets this girl. It's the first half of it It's like Meg Ryan and Tom Hanks. Sure. A scene happens halfway through where you realize this woman, who he is asked out, is absolutely insanely, backingly mad. And in that instant, because he does not have that information, nor do we the viewer, so up to that point in his life, he's been living sleepless in Seattle. In that moment, he's propelled into horror. Now that is the truth that when, when Takashi to, to Miko, the director was asked about why he did this, he said, but that is life.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Nobody who gets killed by a serial killer Is not living whatever their life is Genre convention wise Prior to the moment mm-hmm. they come across a serial killer yeah. Nor is the family of the girl Who goes out to a nightclub Who have a normal family rafters dynamic Nor is the family of that girl Who then goes to a nightclub And then somebody roofies their drink And they end up having dreadful sexual things done to them And they become blah blah um, Lindy Chamberlain to yeah. up to the point that she drove to Ayers Rock, was living whatever she was living, a Seventh-day Adventist life. After that, she became a major major, Italian, major Hollywood um, thing. So what I wanted to do was come into a show where I started two genres, actually, which are the two genres I've made my career in, domestic drama and high-stakes melodrama. And I wanted to start them in the same hour. Both ballad stories. One's an int- I won't go into what the stories are. I think it spoils it the audience. But you've got that story with Sophia, which is sort of like rafters in a way, um, and you've got the story with Philip's world, and that is you know uh, sort of um, I wouldn't say dying. It's a bit like the, the show succession. That's in in yeah. you know it's it's a it's a it's a nasty toxic world. And they actually play parallel to each other for the first hour. And as you know, in watching it, you do not, and we've really worked to keep this from the from, from the publicity of the show so that people will be surprised when they hit the end of the hour, you don't know in what way those two worlds are going to interact until the very final moment, the last image of the hour. For the rest of the hour, they, are, they, they could be separated out and they would be two half hour pilots for two entirely different shows. Yes. And I sort of wanted to, to do that. I found that really interesting to do. I thought the audience would find it interesting. And then I wanted to have those two shows and they, the worlds don't merge quickly. No. I wanted to have those two shows sort of like do a part a de deux with each other until finally they become one dance so that. And that is the technical side, but I think what that technical, what what, the, what that technical thing, and my examination of the zeitgeist, which is the basis upon which I built the narrative, which I think is a very compelling narrative, um, what that that's the basis upon which that has fed this mm. to make it different, because I I think having done that, the show does come. Up, I'm I'm playing with all my old tropes. Mm. I've I, I've mixed them up in a way that I think is makes them relatively fresh, well, the, and that that was the basic, Yeah. Well, this sort of brings me to the uh, point
1: because, as I said, I've watched three episodes so far, and the only and when I say concern that, that I had about the show is is that. It's dubbed as a brand new Australian drama from Bevan Lee. When people think Bevan Lee, they obviously think all saints packed to the rafters. So they are thinking that maybe this show would be of a similar theme. Then there's people that enjoy very gritty, very high end, high budget production values and something that they don't only watch on Netflix and something like Home and Away and Always Greener it's not their cup of tea. I'm just I'm just suggesting there might be some traditionalists out there that, that will be surprised and some Netflix junkies that will miss out. This is not packed to the rafters. In my view, it's something that you would see on Netflix, a very expensive, gritty, powerful, bold, intriguing mystery, something that would stack up against any British drama on TV. I suppose it would be hard for Seven to run a promo that says, you know, this will be good because Beverly created it, but also realise this is a not-traditional Beverly, so if you're into big-budget,
0: bold Gritty drama but oh, imagine... but but anybody but anybody who's seen place knows that, that that rafters is not all I do. I mean place is very rough yeah. place is full of murder it 's full of murder it 's full of body shot therapy it 's full of lies it 's full of deceit it 's full of women who survived the holocaust by literally being prostitutes in in the the gangbang shops of, of of the of the concentration camp yeah. it, you know i mean place to call home is a really tough show. Mm. And so anybody who plays knows that I, and also Place is a very twisty turny narrative. Where a lot of the time you think you know it. One of the nicest compliments I ever got on Place was it was the it was the, the person who wrote about it for the New York Times, and that person wrote. and and I sort of can reasonably quote it because it was like balm to my soul. This is a show where you always think, you know, where it's going. And most of the time it never goes there, but where it goes, you realize is absolutely where it should have gone in the first place. Yeah. And that's what the narrative I think of place was and increasingly became so as it went through into its later seasons. And that's sort of what the narrative of between two worlds is because, Whatever you think, wherever you think the narrative is going to go, even at the end of episode three, which I think the first three episodes contained a lot of surprises, uh, the show goes off in an entirely, I think, the right direction. Mm. But I would say to somebody about the central plot and why those two worlds are linked, tell me where that narrative goes, and none of them would be right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and so, um, I, I, yeah. Look, I mean, I think of Evan show, I, I um, there was, there was a, backhanded <laughs> a backhanded compliment.
1: A backhanded compliment. And there, oh no, 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 that, no! I mean, yeah, I there's some I some people that, that watch Netflix shows, and all that, and they would say, "I would never even watch an Australian drama. Nothing, any type of Australian. They're cheap, and they're whatever." And I prefer my Netflix. And I'm just suggesting that these people, hopefully, listening to the podcast. Uh, you're missing out because this is your high end. This is your, you know, something that perhaps you would see on Netflix or something you would see on a, on, a, on a streaming service or something that was, you know, off. It's it's not traditional. Oh,
0: it's an incredibly well made. It's an incredibly well made show. I think it's an incredibly compelling show. It's yeah. got this narrative that goes like the bloody like a bloody steam train it's got a narrative that really surprises i think and delights and it's got amazing characters and it's beautifully acted and um and i'm sorry arrogance here but it's the best writing i've ever done uh look it's an amazing show and um i think it's sad if we are in a world where you sort of have to go out tugging your forelock cap in hands i mean i mean i thank you for the backhand compliment i know exactly what you're saying so i'm not criticizing what you're saying I just think it's a great shame if we have to go out and say, Oh, really, really trust us. We're really, really good. No, please, really, really trust us. I believe that, you know, hopefully people will come to it. I think from the very beginning, given what happens in the first five minutes, I think, you know, they'll go, Oh, they killed him. Mm. You know, um, and, um, and so, um, oh, sorry, a spoiler alert, but I don't think it spoils it at all. Um, you know, I think, that the hopefully word of mouth will get out. There hopefully people will come on the opening night. And um, yeah. Look at it. And, and and I, I never feel it, I I never feel like see you go back sons and daughters sons and daughters was was very rich you know quite savage storytelling really when you go back and look at it. Uh, then I had what I call my domestic happiness trilogy. But I don't think that should. Define my career, but I think it sort of has because my greatest successes came in that period. But I, I think a Beverly show is whatever Beverly decides to write. And this, and in a way, this show, the answer to that is this show is a homage to the fact that I have written two very different styles of show in my career. And it's marrying both styles together in the one show. And that marriage, I think, is, as I approach my 70th birthday, what made me want to continue writing. Because I thought if I couldn't start, if I couldn't do something different, then what was the point of continuing? So we got the budget to do it. It is, I think, a show that can stand with its head held high against anything on any of the streaming services. And hopefully... People will 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 realise that, and you know, and then maybe that will come to define. Although I think it's probably my swan song, probably that will then come to define what a Beverly show is, as distinct from maybe that will wipe away people saying, you know, that, see. I think I was judged on place by the guy on that platform. I keep coming back to him mm. because I think he probably had seen those other shows and thought, well, that's what this is going to be. Not realizing that you know a writer can write different things at different times of their life. That and you know, I I couldn't keep. have kept doing it for forty years. If I was you know just turning out the same old schlep all the time, I mean, God, take a gun, stick in your mouth, and pull the trigger. You know. Um, So, anyway, thank you for the backhanded compliment, and I think it's very accurately surmised. Um, And I guess
1: reiterating what what you said, that this is a slow burn. The the premise that they have in the promos about the two worlds colliding, uh, and this is not a spoiler, as you've already said, they're not going to collide in
0: Episode 1 necessarily. It uh, it does. No, no, no. No it takes a long while it takes a long while um, but but you know that doesn 't make it uninteresting un- un- I mean, I think the two worlds unfold no, the like two beautiful parallel beautiful shows beautiful, yeah. and increasingly increasing you get the sense that of, of how they might but you I think the the thing is People, I think that the interesting thing is how are they eventually going to meet, and then once they do meet, how is that going to affect the two worlds? And even when they do meet, the worlds don't like like sons and daughters. You know, I'm not I'm knocking at this, but sons and daughters. It was very clear within the first hour exactly, and the and the worlds really started to invade each other very very quickly. I mean, in this show, you've got two incredibly compelling shows going along side by side, it's very, very clear at the end of the first hour how they are going to cross. But then a lot of the narrative suspense of it is how is this going to play out? And the narrative defying the audience expectation of the normal story choices that would take place. Um, And I think it does defy narrative expectation. Um, And I think that to me is what made me interested in writing it rather than going back and sort of like doing a fairly, you know, obviously laid out narrative strand. I mean, um, and we pulled it off. You know, it does look, easy. I mean, it, it created huge problems. Those two worlds, you know, stylistically, do you give each world a different style? How do you marry the two worlds? How how do you make two shows play side by side and not in fact cancel each other out when they're in fact not interacting with each other and i think Creeb standards with his visual style has done a wonderful job on that Uh, the actors finding their different you know how do you marry two playing styles the playing style of an ordinary world seemingly and the playing style of this heightened world the way we married it was to say this Philosophically, the fact that audience, ordinary lives are less interesting dramatically than high-blown wealthy lives is, in fact, a comforting false premise. There are an incredible number of stories out there in ordinary suburbia that are just as narratively compelling yeah. as something that might be happening in Rudolph. Uh, um, uh, uh, Rupert Murdoch's mansion in, uh, uh, not that I'm saying the character is based on Rupert, but the Rupert Murdoch's mansion-like succession. They're just as compelling. Mm. It's just that that, 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 the mistake that I think writers can make is assume that they're dull. Mm. And that's why rafters work, because if you look at rafters, Edwin says what a light show Rastus was. But in the first hour, you had um, a husband who's so worried about his sexual performance on the night of his wedding anniversary that he overdoses on Viagra and has to go to the hospital has his penis aspirated. A father who is so riddled with grief that the only way he can deal with the loss of his wife is to wear her clothes around the house when he is home and who has a heart attack and has to be taken out on a stretcher. With his, you know, with his wife's clothes on. Um, and, you know, and, and a daughter who's being beaten up by her crystal methamphetamine addicted boyfriend. And we wrote that at a time when meth was not as much on the public consciousness as previously. Um, and, and a son, the son who was supposed to be the one to succeed, who has married a very wealthy Woman who's and and come back under the roof because they're completely broke and they don't want to go to her father for money. Yeah. Now that is not light fluffy drama. No. And so those and the reason rafters worked was we had the humour of life around it, but we were true to the drama. And that's my point. I think in saying all of my shows in a way that people sort of see as If you go in and you analyse any episode, they will have a very strong dramatic base. Um, And suburbia is just as interesting dramatically as the world of of the the Rupert Murdochs. And I think that's why, having found that in performance level, the actors came in and they played it with the truth of the drama in both worlds. And therefore, they married because the drama isn't played campy in one world and kitchen sink in the other. The drama is played in both worlds. The truth of the emotion of that world. And that's why it works. And without that, I think it was on the page. But if you, going back to you saying, are the actors important? Yeah, they're bloody important, because if they hadn't pulled that off, this show wouldn't work that like does.
1: Well, so actually, speaking of um, actors, cause with the cast of this show, um, Heine Norris... Um what a great get! We all know it from Cold Feet, of course. I mean, that is—it's—it's a, it's a great cast, isn't
0: it? Oh, look, Hermione! When they brought Hermione's name up, because they listen, we live in a world these days where to get the sort of money that that show required to you, you get made in terms of an overseas distributor has to have a face that you know isn't just one of our local people who don't don't cut it cut the mustard overseas. They can go away and create a a, 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 reputation over there, but there are some very, very good people here that you put their name on the marquee and they mean nothing if you're trying to show overseas. You know, sadly, but true. <laughs> um, so they were talking, look at, looking at, and they said, who could be an overseas person? I said, well, I don't, I think the only character it can be is Kate. She's the only one who doesn't have to be organically Australian for the narrative to work. Um, and so, they started looking around when they suggested 90, because I only knew her work from cold feet. I was unsure. And then I saw a tape of something she'd done in the show Luther. And that made me feel, and then I had a chat. It um, via FaceTime one night. Um, it was late at night, so it was FaceTime with the vision off, so both of us didn't scare each other um, with our late night appearances. And so, um, well, hers late night and me during day. And so we had, you know, we had this lovely, and we hit it off straight away because she's got a great sense of humour. And I think you recognised in my voice, because this is a passion project for me, for the sort of, it's almost a, because it's a homage to all, to both the styles I've made a the career in it was and 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 I love the story, and I think it's my best storytelling and my best scripting. She recognized the passion in my um I think she said in an interview in the paper today, and that's it 's true it 's not her talking bullshit for p r she she really jumped on board because you know her and I clicked over our our sheer passion my passion for the project, which I communicated to her uh and then she came out and thank God she did because um she, like Noni, brought something to the role which I'd never seen on the page, which is oh, deliriously wonderful. Mm. And what that woman can do with the slightest tick of her right eyebrow in terms of communicating subtext is just not worth mentioning. She's, she's brilliant. And her and Philip, quast uh, hit it off enormously. And if that relationship hadn't worked because the two characters are so toxic with each other, um, if that, they hadn't worked the show wouldn't have worked and and they formed a wonderful working relationship, you know Philip, who was extraordinary and 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 you know um but but you can have two extraordinary people if they don't mesh and they had to mesh for it to work is there a uh, and, so, no, 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 and, say, and so yeah, we were incredibly lucky
1: i was um just going to say, was there a favorite part of the show because for me, it was definitely that interaction between Kate and her husband and Philip. it is so layered and so many. Elements to it and secrets and intrigue, and oh my goodness, and those two. two
0: just actors. wait. All I can say is just wait for the next seven episodes because you think if it's like, if you think it's laying the end of episode three, oh my god. Um, <laughs> look, the interesting thing was, um, I love what Sass Weissman does with her role. Um, she um, she comes in in a, in in a much less showy role, and she is a fine enough performer to know that she has to play the truth of that role and not chew the scenery to try and compete with what's in the other world. And for that I part of the fact, you know, I love I love her as a person, I love her as an artiste, but she she did that. Um and the young people who all the young people who came in, um uh Melanie, um Tom, uh you know, playing the, you know, the, 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 the twisted progeny of the twisted, uh, rich people, you know, and that sort of like very, very crazy story. And I think it's probably the craziest story in the show, the story between them. Um, uh, and Megan, who does a, who, now, here's, here's a classic example. Megan Hajar, who has a very, very significant storyline as the sister in the suburban world. Yep. Now, I wrote her. You know that you know that sort of person in the family who's in the background and nobody sort of notices them—the quiet person—and yeah. that was her role in that family. The, the daughter who'd been eclipsed by her brother and a father who is now dead and a strong-willed mother, and who's who's sort of like just she's just there. You take her for granted that she's there, and she was a wonderful enough little artiste to come in to those first three eps because you don't really hit what her story is going to be till episode four. And it comes out of what is established in those first three eps that she is that sort of like the wallpaper. She's the person in the family who's taken for granted. And she was such a wonderful little trooper playing that and not trying to pull focus. Once again, like Seth playing the truth Uh, and, 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 holding back until she gets to the time where I give her the storyline that allows her to soar and run with it. Mm. Um, and that explains exactly in the storyline why she's been the woman of the first three episodes that you see. And so, look, uh, you know, they're, 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 all, they're all wonderful, um, you know, really. And, 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 and with all of them, I was blessed that they all came in uh Blazy Best, Wonderful as a Nurse Sandra, to play the truth, you know. But also it's to, two people like Dom who comes in. Dom's in one scene in the first episode and doesn't really return until episode four. And you sort of guess because, you know, he you see him episode one, he makes a fairly dazzling physical impression in that brief scene. You sort of figure, well what's he there for if he just does that? And then he holds off and comes in Episode four, and by the end, is one of the main actors in the show. So, you know, once again, actors who are prepared to come in and be what they are in the moment rather than wanting to twist the moment to be more than they should be on the tapestry at that time. Mm. Blessed in that.
1: Um this is going to be the blandest of uh, questions, but I just thought I'd mention what else you'd like to mention about the show. The reason I say that is because I'm so hesitant to ask questions that will give away storylines because I've seen it, and giving away anything in this show is would be to the detriment of people that are watching it. It's so good. But um
0: thank you. That that is the best comp- that's the best compliment <laughs> you could give me. They've had a terrible time in promos working out how to promo the show oh, that'd be the because. Worst. Yeah. But it's the worst because how the hell do you promo this show without giving away secrets? And you know, you know, I think you'll agree. Even up to and there's even there's a shitload more to come. Excuse my French. Oh. Um. Uh. Uh. The the the, the more passion I get, the the more vulgar I tend to get. Um. The the <laughs> you know the, the 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 each episode unfolds. You know more and more and more and more secrets from this Pandora's box of secrets. And all, and, and one of the things about the show is it sets up a show in which one side looks like they've got no secrets and the other side looks like they're, they're riddled with them. But the interesting thing as it goes along is that the world of Sophia that's presented in episode one is riddled with just as much denial and secrets and, and dysfunction. It's just that it's been swept under the carpet better and that, that these people in the other world... Are, uh, I guess let it spill more. Uh, the, uh, the two worlds, I believe, between two worlds is, is is on the most basic level, between the worlds of Sophia and the worlds of Philip. But thematically to me, the two worlds that it's between is the world of what we present to the world and what we hide. Yeah, And everybody does that. We all have, I have my jolly green Bev suit that I put on. I am one person in my private life and all my friends often go, that's not you. But, um, and then I have the other guy, the sort of professional guy, because I'm pretty reclusive and not very social person. I almost have to put on my jolly but green Bev suit to go in, into public amongst people because I much prefer the, my friends, the characters on the page of my shows. And I actually do prefer socializing with the world. So I'm very, very aware that, that, you know, some people can form an opinion of me. It's absolutely got nothing to do with the inner workings of who I am. So I was very interested in doing that too. So if you look at all of these characters in the show, what you think they are, all of them in episode one, and this is why it's very, very hard for the promos to promo, what you think they are in episode one is nothing to do with what they are by the time you get to the end of episode ten. Yeah. None of them. And that – so your compliment to me is like – it is like gold to my ears because that's what the show is about. The show is about thinking you know where something's going and big time, ongoingly, you don't. There's not one episode where you don't have to revise your view, your view of at least one character, if not the whole lot of them. But that's what we do in life. I mean, there's nothing you – know, I don't know why it's not done in more drama because – you know, usually what happens in drama pilots, you set up the pilot, you slay it out on the slab at the front. This, this is that one, this is that one, this is that one, moving right along. To a certain extent, Raf's did that, quite frankly.
1: Yeah,
0: it was all laid out. I'm not criticising it. That's that's Julie, that's Dave. That he's the goofball son, he's the he's the screw up son. She's the yeah. You know, and it was all laid out on the slab, and then the stories carried on from there. But life's not like that. You meet somebody, you might go out on a good first date. By date three. You know, crazy stalker. Yeah, or you might, you know, or our friends, the friendships. You know, we, you might meet somebody and not like them. And then, then a year later, you go, how did we form a friendship? So, that, to me, is I think one of the ways the show is most like life, and that is we get to know these people by degrees, just as in life we get to know people by degrees. And those are the two worlds that I think the show is between surface perception. And internal truth.
1: Well, the bit that's interested me in, in what you've said there is, as I said, I've watched three episodes and I thought by the end of episode three, you sort of get a sense of, oh, okay, this is where the show's going. But you've just sort of mentioned if, if that's what's happened, what I thought up to episode three, it's, it's still where they keep
0: unravelling. Now, I, I thought I was to gonna... say... trust me, whatever, whatever you think at the end of episode three is going to happen, it's not. <laughs> And I know, I know what you're talking about, and it is so not that big time, um, so not that. I predicted I predicted, this. And, 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 and I did it deliberately. I did it deliberately. I wanted the audience to go, ha, 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 I'm ahead of you, and I'm sitting at home on a Sunday night watching you going, ha, 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 you think you're ahead of me, well, you're not. Uh, so it's just my little perverse game with the audience. Beautiful. But it's also what I think is good. It's the sort of storytelling, if it's my swan song, And it probably is because, look, I'm 70 in November. I see a lot of contemporaries, to be frank, dying around me. I'm a lucky enough gay guy to be HIV negative who didn't die of the big one. And many of my generation did. I've survived cancer. I'm sitting up in my eerie here making sure as a type 1 diabetic of my age that COVID doesn't kill me. And, And And... So, you know, death increasingly comes into your thoughts, you know, without being morbid. And all I know is when I do die, I don't want to die with a head full of characters. I want to die just me, alone in my head, with my truth. And for 40 years, I have never not lived without a head full of characters. And so I think my swan song is not necessarily that I might have run out of energy. My swan song is intimations are more. You know, you know, how boring lying there on the ground and not thinking some sort of like internal truth about oneself, but going, oh, what would have Sophia done next in the plot? I mean, that's a pretty tragic last thought, you know what I mean? So that, I'm not wanting to be morbid in that, but there's this sort of existential thing that's saying to me. Also, I do not want to be that guy where they go. The oh, poor old darling. He he had it once. He's really lost it, hasn't he? And 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 failures and they're not pleasant to live through. Mm. And whether this succeeds in the ratings or not, and it would be sad if it didn't. But whether it succeeds in the ratings or not, I know we made a gloriously fine show. And if I put my feet up and retire on that, then I can retire with equanimity. But if I go one too far and that doesn't work, then I have to go two too far because I cannot retire on failure. It's just not my nature.
1: Look, this uh, final question. I hope, that's, I hope that's not too serious. No, this final question is, is exactly on what you're talking about. I wanted to ask a few years back, you were interviewed, and at the end of the article it said, as of the beginning of 2017, Bevan is working on season five of A Place to Call Home whilst gearing back and contemplating the prospect of a well-earned retirement after nearly 40 years in the business. Now, um, so your break, your definition of a break and heading to retirement was to make between two worlds and back to the rafters. Uh, do you and I have different versions okay. of what gearing back no. is.
0: Here, here's the deal of why I said that then, because I was finishing Place and I was very, very happy with the way Place finished. It had it got its conclusion on Foxtel, a, a proper narrative conclusion, which it never had after two seasons on Seven. It had that ridiculously abortive piece of bullshit ending that they put on the end of season two to somehow or other pretend it was wrapped up, um, uh, which broke my heart. Uh, but I, I had been working on Between Two Worlds and been doing my early work on it But it really didn't look like it was going to come together because it is such an expensive show. We were going into parlous times fiscally. We are in parlous times. You know, um, I, I, I honestly knew it was a great show and everybody who read it knew it was they loved the scripts. But everybody kept saying, how will we find the money to do this? And this sort of only exists. Because Angus Ross, bless him, and Julie McGoran, bless her, um, uh, loved it, and Angus' programmer kept wanting to push it, and then, you know, it only exists because Tim Warner, um, bless him, um, took the incredibly ballsy call, call, given the landscape, the fiscal landscape, of saying, okay, let's do it, so we managed it, um, I made that statement when I didn't think you know, this show was, even though I wanted it to, I didn't think this show was going to get up, and I wasn't prepared to do it on any basis other than the basis I thought that it could be as good as it should be. And then uh, Rath sort of came up out of the blue. It came out of left field with Amazon approaching Seven Productions. you know? Um, yeah. Uh, I didn't predict that, and I didn't necessarily want to do it when it did come up, and I found my way, I found my way into finding a way to want to do it, you know, to respond professionally to the set of circumstances. And so um, that, you know, was me doing what I think was right professionally, not necessarily me doing what was right from my heart, uh, whereas Between Two Worlds was, was a passion project from my heart. So um, I, think, I think I believed that at the time. Um, just as I believe at the moment that this is my swan song, and maybe in three years' time, I don't know, I'll be contradictory and have done something else and you'll be calling me out on it again there. But <laughs> it's less likely, I think, at the moment, probably. Well,
1: um, your, your time has been gracious. I've, I have looked at the time and realised we, we could have got through two episodes of Between Two Worlds during this chat. Um, how long have, t- have we talked? It's, uh, if it was, uh looks like one hour and... Thirty-five minutes,
0: at least. Jesus! If the audience, if the audience hangs in there, hangs in there through this, all I can say is, good on you. You've got great stamina, and I hope I haven't bored you with us.
1: No, no, it's been great. Look, I, I obviously wish you the best of luck for the premiere of between two worlds. The premiere is Sunday, the twenty-sixth of July, at eight thirty on Seven. It really is high and glitzy, expensive-looking drama with a fabulous cast. Um, you're not retired yet or you're heading to retirement but I do want to say uh, thank you from the entire Australian public for giving us and continuing to deliver compelling Australian stories for the last 40 years. Um, There's just so many so many shows that You're definitely in the legend status so thank you so much.
0: Thank you. Look, you, you sit down, you start typing, then 40 years you blink and you sort of have people saying nice things to you so I've, I've been very blessed it's given me a living for all that length of time and it's allowed me to Live in fantasy worlds where a lot of the time I felt more comfortable in the, than in the real world. So I've been, I've been, I've, I've worked very hard, but I've been a lucky dollar So but thank you for your thanks, and um, I guess to, to, I thank the audience for watching. I hope they watch this one. Yeah, and thank you for the questions. I really the questions are really good. They weren't those usual pro forma things where I roll my eyes and go, "Really, that one again?" So good on you. Thank you.
1: <laughs> no worries. Thank you. And um, and that was uh, legend television creator and writer Bevan Lee. That ends episode one of the TV Butbox podcast one on one series. You can keep up to date with all the latest television news and exclusives at TVButbox au, where you can find the original TV Box podcast as well as the TV Bingebox podcast. Thank you for listening. I'm Aaron Ryan. we can catch me.